Bibles to Psalm 3. If you have one of the church Bibles, uh, which is the NIV translation, it's page 544. You can follow along. I'm actually going to be reading from the English Standard Version this morning, but you'll see that it's very similar. Psalm 3. Page 544 in the Church Bibles. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, There is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. This is God's word. How as Christians should we use the Psalms? That's easy, some say. Just take the words and make them your own. And it is a place where there are just so many beautiful phrases that uh, we can easily turn to, words that we can find great help uh, in our prayers. Whether in joy or even more often in our pain, we can find words in the Psalms that help us speak when we don't know what to say. But is it right to use the psalm in that way, to just instantly take the words and speak them as our own? Uh, The problem with this simple approach comes when we come to verses like the second half of verse 7. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Now I've been to many prayer meetings in my life so far, but I've not been to one yet where someone has got up and prayed that. Strike our enemies, Lord, break their teeth. Uh, Maybe a dentist who needs a bit more work might pray something like that just to drum up business. But it doesn't sound like the sort of thing we should be saying. And actually, that is quite a mild statement in in the Psalms. You can read far worse statements that uh, are in the mouth of the psalmist. So how should we use the Psalms as Christians? Well, to get that answer, we need to first ask the crucial question, whose voice are we hearing in the Psalms? Notice with me, it's a very personal psalm, isn't it? Verse 3, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. Verse 4, I cried aloud. Verse 5, I laid down. And so the crucial question to ask really is this, Who is this person that is speaking? And the start of the psalm really gives you a pretty good clue. Uh, these, These words are part of the original manuscript, part of the Bible that Jesus would have read. And they reveal the speaker of the psalm, a psalm of David. These are particular words of a particular person, David. And this is, of course, no ordinary person, is it? Uh, These are the words of the king. 
the king who had a very special relationship with God, as Psalm 2 pointed out to us. This is the king to whom God had said, verse 7 of Psalm 2, You are my son. Uh, Verse 8, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. See, the starting point of understanding this psalm is to realize that it might well be highly inappropriate for us to speak these words as our own words. It would be strange for me today to stand up here and give a speech uh, by Barack Obama as President of the United States and address you with those words, wouldn't it? You'd think I'd really lost my marbles. And it would be strange for me to assume that I can just simply pick up David's words and, and use them exactly as my own. And so as you read the the Psalms, you need to ask the question, does David write as merely a representative believer? Or is he writing as a king to whom God has made specific promises? And I think you can find both types in the the Psalm book. It may be appropriate just to take those words more instantly to yourself. But God has a special relationship with David. We read in 2 Samuel 7 that he promises David he would establish an everlasting kingdom through him, that God would give him rest from all his enemies. And I think as we come to understand Psalm 3, we need to first see how it applied to King David. And it's got a very specific situation that gave rise to the psalm, isn't it? A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. That's partly why we spent time reading 2 Samuel this morning, just to get that background. A tragic situation. It is the event of his own son causing a rebellion against him. It was so swift, so unexpected that David had no other option than to flee from Jerusalem with some of his loyal people to flee for his life. So I think we've got to look at Psalm 3 firstly in the context of of God's anointed king, the Christ, uh, of David's context. But the second point of application comes... When we remember that the the apostles' preaching and ministry was about proving that Jesus, the historical Jesus that they eyewitnessed, that that Jesus was the Christ. Listen to Acts 5.42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. The Old Testament spoke of the Christ. They wanted to teach people that Jesus was that Christ. And why do they teach like that? Because that's how Jesus saw the Old Testament scriptures. So keep your finger here and turn over to Luke 24. Familiar to many, maybe, but I just want to underline the point. Luke chapter 24, that's page 1062 in the church Bibles, 1062. Post-resurrection, in the upper room, Jesus says this to them in Luke chapter 24 and verse 44. Page 1062. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures, and he told them, This is what is written the Christ will suffer. And rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. See, if we're going to read the Psalms as Christians, we need to understand, as Jesus saw here, that the Psalms tell us all about him. 
that the Psalms reveal that the Christ would suffer. So it's not surprising when we discover that Jesus suffered. That the, that the, the Psalms teach that the Christ would rise from the dead. And so we shouldn't be surprised when Jesus rose from the dead. And the Psalms teach us, and the law of Moses and the prophets teach us, that repentance and forgiveness of sins, this good news of what Jesus achieved, will be preached to all nations. That we will not understand the Psalms until we understand that it points to this truth, this reality. And so as Christians, we need to see how these words apply to the Christ, King David, and the Christ, King Jesus, in an ultimate way. And then, and only then, can we begin to see how these words can apply to us. See, by faith, we are people who come to God in Christ. That's why we finish our prayers often with these words, in the name of Jesus Christ, all the promises of God, all the blessings of God only become ours through faith in Jesus Christ. And so before getting into this psalm, I just want to explain my methodology to you, how, how, how I approach a psalm like this, that we need to understand it in these three areas of meaning, to King David, to King Jesus, and then lastly to us. Or to put it another way, we need to see the Christ before we apply it to the Christian. Well, there's my methodology, enough of that. Let's look at the psalm. It's in four parts. So turn back to Psalm 3. It's four parts, this psalm. In verses 1 and 2, we speak of the Christ's crisis. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. See, the king is in a serious crisis. Uh, Derek Kidner's commentary puts it this way, to be in a minority is a real test of nerve, especially when the minority is shrinking. How many are my foes, the psalmist says. Especially when the opposition is active, many are rising against me. And the personal pain and grief for David must have been particularly intense. His foes were led by his own son, Absalom. It's hard to imagine that. But the personal pain and grief was even worse by the taunts of what people were saying. They're saying, God's finally given up on you, David. That's why you're running for your life. God's given up on you. Verse 2, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Think about that. I think that's what that Sela phrase is about. Scholars are various opinions. They think it's maybe a, a musical direction, maybe a change of key or a pause. And it works to kind of make us think about what's just been said. There's no salvation for you in God. Think about that statement. Imagine someone saying that to you. No hope now of any deliverance from your dark situation. God has given up on you. Can you think of any more desolate words? And David, as he's, as he's sort of fleeing away from Jerusalem... There was Shimei, we read it earlier, um, throwing stones and cursing David. Uh, Shimei, a descendant of the house of Saul. And this is what he's saying, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in which, whose place you've reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you're a man of blood. And so here we have God's king who had all the awesome promises there of Psalm 2, uh, promises of peace from his enemies, a never-ending kingdom. And what's his experience? He's fleeing for his life from the city. 
And around him are people shouting, God is not going to save you. That was the experience of the Christ. Someone who suffered from his enemies, traveling away from Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley, barefoot and weeping and ascending up the Mount of Olives. Does that sound like anybody else you know? Now, can you imagine you know, what they were doing in, in, in the temple, teaching? They're, just, they're picking up the Psalms, they're reading the Scriptures, and they're saying to their Jewish compatriots, does this not sound like someone we've been telling you about? This is the experience of the Christ. Christ David. This is the experience of Jesus, Christ Jesus. There in Jerusalem, his foes rising up against him, led by one of his closest companions so for three years, Judas. And uh, our New Testament reading from John 18 sees Jesus traveling away from Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley, exactly the same route, with his enemies moving in as he ascended the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane, the place of his anguish, the place of his tears, as he contemplates the cross. How much more could he say, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. Listen to those hateful taunts while he's on the cross. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, let the King of Israel come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Deserted by his friends, there Jesus hung on a cross, a symbol of one cursed by God, and we hear the Christ crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was the experience of the Christ. Now, how could he face such a thing? We'll look at verses 3 and 4. Look at the Christ's cry in verses 3 and 4. The Christ's cry. How does he respond in this crisis of rising foes? Well, the simple and profound answer of the psalm is this He prays to God. Verse 4 I cried aloud to the Lord. Terrible crisis, terrible foes. It's the sort of thing that can paralyze us. We can be overwhelmed with fear. But what the Christ does is to turn his gaze away from his foes toward God. And it is prayer that transforms his perspective. As he turns his gaze away from his enemies up to a faithful and mighty God, his enemies shrink in their threat and their significance as he considers the greatness of God. Verse 3, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Think about that, the psalmist says. Extraordinary words, really, for David as he flees from Jerusalem, isn't it? There he is, in apparent shame and disgrace, and yet, as he's Going away barefoot and weeping, he can say, The Lord is my shield. The Lord is my glory. The Lord is the one who's going to lift up my head. It was fascinating to me as I read the McShane reading this morning from Genesis chapter 40 that we get a little insight into what that phrase, the lifter of my head, means. Uh, Genesis 40 tells us about Joseph interpreting the dreams of of uh, Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker who were in prison with him. And to the cupbearer, he says this. This is what his dream means. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. Well, there's the sense of it. 
David, even as he's walking away in shame and disgrace, he says, well, the Lord is the one who's going to lift up my head. He'll restore me. He knows for certain that the Lord will answer his prayer, for God has made great promises to him, which he is sure that God will deliver on. And what does Jesus do, surrounded by his enemies, facing the cruelty of men and facing the wrath of God in his place, as he stands in the place of sinners? Well, there he is in the Garden of Gethsemane. This king cries to his heavenly Father. Amongst the shame and rejection, Jesus entrusts himself to God's will. Yet not my will, but yours be done. As you read through John's Gospel, on on three occasions in John's Gospel, Jesus speaks of himself being lifted up. In John chapter 12, it says this, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And then in a few verses, Jesus says this, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast down, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus saw that God's glory would be revealed in that moment where Jesus would be lifted up to die on a cross. And Jesus faced that reality with courage, being strengthened through prayer as he cries to the Lord in the garden. And that's what enables him to have the confidence of verse 5 and 6, the Christ confidence. The Christ confidence in verses 5 and 6. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I'll not be afraid of many thousands of people who set themselves against me all around. And again, this is incredible confidence, isn't it? Considering how precarious his situation is. If um, Absalom had obeyed the, the advice of Ahithophel, and who came in and said, look, now Absalom, now you're in Jerusalem, just march out instantly, overtake David uh, as he's exhausted, and you'll be able to kill them all, and you'll, you'll have it all sewn up. And yet Absalom didn't listen to Ahithophel. God frustrated his advice. And and David's in that precarious situation where really in a moment he could be extinguished like that. And yet he can say these words. He can sleep. He can wake up again, knowing that the Lord sustained him. You know, when our fears grow, it is hard at times to get to sleep, isn't it? It's hard for our minds to switch off. And um, if we get to sleep eventually, we can wake up early in the morning and, and our gut is tight and churning and that issue is going around and around our heads but not David he, he, he's waking up to thousands of people against him they're surrounding him he says thousands of people but instead of fear he's, he starts his terrible morning with faith and confidence in God uh, some people have dubbed this psalm the morning psalm a great psalm in the midst of conflict He wakes up with great faith and confidence in God. And consider Jesus Christ as he hung upon the cross. Having fully received God's punishment for sin, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit before he breathes his last breath. And I wonder, is there a hint hint of resurrection fulfillment in these words of Psalm 3? I lie down and sleep and I'll wake again. 
because the Lord sustains me. Is that the confidence with which Jesus could face the cross and face death, knowing that as he lies down, gives his last breath, that the Lord is the one who can sustain him and keep him and raise him? And lastly, the Christ concern in verses 7 to 8. The Christ concern. Arise, O Lord, verse 7. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. So there's David. Here's the king's prayer. Save me, O my God. Arise, O Lord. The foes against David are so great that only God can save him. And as he considers the day ahead, he knows that it will only be God who will be able to grant him victory. And so he prays for the defeat of his enemies. And for him to pray for the defeat of his enemies, for him not to do that, would actually be an abdication of his throne. He is the king. It is right for him to pray for that victory. There can be no peace and security in the land with this uh, upstart prima donna son Absalom who's uh, a perfect mirror of so many problems we see today of uh, style over substance. Absalom clinging to the throne that is not his and there can be no peace in the land when Absalom is in control. The teeth of, of, of David's enemies are seeking to consume him so, so David says smash their teeth. God, render them powerless, impotent. Think about Jesus. Now, how do these words relate to Jesus? Now, we can get squeamish about such a thing. How could, how could the Jesus of love ever say such a thing? And the first thing to say is that for David, this was not all that he said about his enemies. While he doesn't quite say to Shimei, forgive him for he doesn't know what he's doing, he does allow the commanders, he stops the commanders from lifting his head off his shoulders, which would have stopped the cursing, and shows leniency. And it's not everything uh, to say about Jesus, is it? He does say, forgive them for they know not what they do. But as we read the New Testament, the, the cross is not the place of defeat, according to the New Testament. It's the place of victory. Colossians 2.14 tells us that the cross of Jesus, in the cross of Jesus, God was disarming and triumphing over demonic rulers and authorities. And the devil is described in 1 Peter 5 as a roaring lion. But the good thing for those who are in Christ is that the lion's teeth have been smashed. He's roaring, but he's toothless. The death of Christ is the death of death, evidenced by his resurrection. The victory won at the cross will be clear to all at the second coming of Christ. And on that day, all the enemies of God and his people will be totally conquered and defeated, including death itself. Now, what is the Christ's final concern in this psalm? Well, the end of verse 8 makes it clear that this is not ultimately a prayer for himself. It is a prayer for the salvation and the blessing of God's people. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. The salvation of the king will be the true means of bringing blessing to the people. The extraordinary thing to consider about Jesus' death upon the cross is that the ultimate purpose of God was to bring salvation for God's people. 
that they would be blessed through his obedience even to death on a cross. Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame for the joy of seeing people blessed with salvation. And this is where the psalm really starts talking about us if we've put our trust in King Jesus. There we are in the last line. The people will get blessed with salvation in the victory of the king. And my Christian friends, here is the confidence of the Christian. It's there in verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. There, there is the confidence of the Christian. Salvation belongs to the Lord. However many foes that may rise up against us, they are not greater than the God who is determined to save us. It can be tough at times living as a Christian in this country, in school. Uh, if you're there in high school, there's only a few of you at the Scripture Union. You're surrounded by a lot of mocking uh, people that you have faith in Jesus. It can be intimidating in university to see how uh, many of the academics and how many people just mock the very claims of, of Christ and Christianity. It's tough to stand as a Christian when you're in such a minority. And we live at a time where, where Christianity is being mocked and marginalized. And we need to recapture the confidence of the Christ in verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The devil can whisper many lies and make many accusations against us. Maybe, maybe we're living today with the consequences of rebellious choices from the past. We've actually um, known God's forgiveness. And yet there are daily reminders in our lives of what we did in the past that stay with us. There are consequences to our actions. And when we're really low, the voice of the accuser can come and say to us, look at your past sins. Look at your failures. Look at the sins still in your thoughts and in your heart. Even though you say you're a Christian all these years, there's no salvation for you in God. And if salvation were a work of our human achievement, or our blamelessness, then there would be no hope, would there? There would be no hope for us. And the accuser's words would actually speak our destruction. But here is the glorious truth in the confidence of the Christian. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is not found in the free will of man. Salvation is not found in our moral record of achievement. Salvation is not found in our works of achievement. Salvation from first to last belongs to the Lord alone. You see, if he chooses his people, calls them by his grace, brings them to life by his spirit, he will keep them by his power. In Christ, we can say, uh, in the face of all discouragements and opposition in this life, uh, verse 3, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory, the lifter of my head, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. That confidence can be our confidence in Christ. As we're trusting Christ, we can say this. If God is for us, who can be against us? Think about that. If God is for us, who can be against us? And when we get that, even with unresolved problems and life-threatening situations, I mean, this is a psalm. He's still facing a terrible day. Even with unresolved problems in our life, we can sleep and face a new day knowing that the Lord will sustain us. 
This psalmist is just another beautiful reminder of how intimately God is sustaining all of his creation. Why did you wake up this morning? You woke up this morning because the Lord sustained you through the night. The Lord sustains us by his power and grace. My friends, as we come to the end of our short lives, how is it that we can face death? Well, in Christ, death is not a step into oblivion. The New Testament language of death is this, that it is to lie down and sleep. Asleep in the Lord. Resting in the sustaining power of the Lord who will awaken us with the trumpet call of resurrection day. Because of the victory of our resurrected king, we can lie down and sleep even in death without anxiety, without fear, for the Lord will sustain us. And with the other psalm, Psalm 23, we can say, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And my prayer is that that would comfort and strengthen us for this week ahead. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for this ancient song inspired by your spirit through the experience of King David. We thank you that this psalm is our psalm in Christ. Lord, you know about the present struggles that each one of us face. Lord, some are very discouraged this day, facing great challenges. So I pray that you would take these words and drive them deep into our hearts that we may have the same confidence through Christ. Lord, we thank you that salvation belongs to you. Lord, we would not rob you of that glory. And we thank you that it is in your mercy and your grace that we find hope and strength to face each day. In Christ's precious name, amen.